listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our teaching text today comes from John 12, 1-19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself with what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on accounts of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the world. Word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Josiah. Well, one of the defining characteristics of our species is that we are meaning makers. We are meaning makers. We don't merely grunt our way through life like animals. We think, we feel, we believe, we value, we act, and we act with meaning. And one of the central ways that we uh, both uh, attribute meaning to things and also derive meaning from things, like actions and objects and people and moments, is through the use of signs and symbols. There's actually a whole field of inquiry dedicated to the study of signs and symbols called semiotics. Semiotics, there's a fancy word that you can use in everyday conversation this week. Semiotics, the study of signs, symbols, and significations, the study of how meaning is created. And by the end of this message, you're going to notice signs and symbols everywhere, and we're all going to be amateur semioticians. Humans use signs and symbols to convey and to derive meaning. Let me give you a couple of examples. 
Uh, a social example would be like w with milestones. Uh, someone has a baby, and you go to visit them, and you take them a meal. Or someone dies, and you send flowers to uh, the family of the deceased, or you go to the funeral. Now, all of those actions are, are fairly everyday, but they're symbolic actions, especially for the recipient. What do these acts symbolize? Well, they indicate friendship. It's like, hey, you matter to me. We belong to one another. They indicate recognition. I know that this was a big moment for you. I know that this really mattered for you. Each of those acts also communicates the value of a life. You know, our nurses and healthcare workers could tell us, like, babies are born every single day in every hospital in our city. In some ways, it's not that big a deal. And yet, man, we go and we visit this person and realize, no, this is a really big deal. This little person is here now, and they have a name. Or when someone dies, you should go to the funeral. Because it communicates this life mattered. Uh, when I officiate funerals, I often quote this really encouraging, positive scripture from Ecclesiastes. It says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because death is the destiny of everyone and the wise will take it to heart. Kids have it on bracelets and t-shirts. It's... <laughs> There's wisdom to be gained at funerals, but it, it, there's, there's value to be communicated to the family of the deceased in going to the funeral. People will remember who visited when they had a baby or when they were hospitalized or who did or who did not go to the funeral because of what it signifies, because of what it symbolizes. Thinking about another social symbol using a milestone, think about a wedding. There's a very powerful symbol about who walks the bride down the aisle. There's a powerful symbol of who is in the wedding party. Uh, those of you who've gotten married in recent years know the, the symbol of like the invitation list or the seating chart, a lot of drama surrounding those items because of what it symbolizes. The way that symbols are leveraged can uh, heal or can hurt. They can catalyze or they can kill a relationship. That's why some of those social milestone moments are really important. They're everyday social symbols that we employ unconsciously. We, we hug. We kiss, we shake hands, we give high fives, we give simple greetings to other people. We notice when we receive them, and we also notice when those things are absent. Now, what's interesting is when you take the topic of greetings and you put it into a particular context like the church, it takes on even greater symbolic value. Because imagine a person who moves to a city and they don't know anybody and they think, I can build a network of friendships in a church. And they go into a church community. You know how unnerving it is to walk into a room full of strangers. And they, they come in and they see other people. And that's as far as it gets. They come, they stay for an hour, they leave, no one talks to them, no one asks them questions, no one who's been around introduces them around to other people in the community. What a terrible message, that, that, what a terrible symbol that is. Sometimes people come in and they, they place on the community of faith, and, and not, not wrongly so, expectations of actually what God is like. So by being ignored by the people of God, it reinforces for them, well, actually, maybe I'm being ignored by God and I don't matter to Him either. On the other hand, when, we can be, when we're warm, not just like saying, hey, how are you doing, the standard American greeting, but to look a person in the face, to engage with them, to have a conversation, to invite them into the, 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 people's, the people that you already know, it carries symbolic value. 
There's social symbols of attention when you're looking at a person and you make good eye contact with them or, or like when you're like nodding along to, to signify to them, I understand what you're saying, you're not crazy. It's a symbol of attention. There are symbols of inattention, like where you're like, uh-huh, yeah, 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 uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah, great, great. We're looking at our phone, like it's a symbol, I'm not paying attention to you, or when our body is physically turned away from the person that we're engaging in, or even when you're listening to a sermon and your face is like, <laughs> it sends me a strong symbol about your level of interest and appreciation in the message. And I'll be honest, I'm going to try not to look at you again once I notice that. There's symbols in our homes. When, when the arrangement of our furniture is around a screen, it gives a symbol, a little nudge to everybody about what the purpose of the room is for. When you pull into your neighborhood, and if you're luckily, lucky enough to have a clean garage, and you pull your car into the garage, and it closes behind you, and your curtains facing outward are always closed, it sends an antisocial symbol to your neighbors, I don't want to talk to you or interact with you. There are political symbols, tons of political symbols. When a politician is sworn in, they may put their hand on a Bible. They may put their hand on a couple of Bibles. They may put their hand on the Bible of someone who is really important, or they may not use a Bible at all. They may use a comic book. They may use a holy book from another faith, and all of that is symbolic. You think about the presence or the absence of a president at a presidential inauguration. That's symbolic. The guests of honor at a State of the Union address, that is symbolic. D.C. itself is meant to be a symbol of like the temple of American democracy and power. It's an evocative symbol. Tyrants like Hitler and Mussolini and the North Korean dictators leveraged the symbol of a military parade to show their might and their power. Traditionally, the United States has not done this because we don't strut, we don't flaunt like, like other leaders in that way. Think about the symbology of this physical space or the physical space of any church. Imagine that you walk into a church and all of the house lights are down and there's fog streaming in. It's not like the Shekinah glory, but it's coming from fog machines and they're moving lights and there's a screen front and center. That tells a certain story. It signifies something about who's important and about what's important and what the purpose of the gathering is. Or imagine that you walk into a space with just soaring ceilings and stained glass windows. It tells a story. What, what do these symbols communicate about the purpose of the gathering? Uh, many clergy wear vestments of some kind. Uh, you may not know this, but it's pretty traditional for Anglican priests, which is what I am, to collar up, to wear like the traditional garment, you know, with like the white collar here. And I'm, I can't believe I'm going to say it at this service, too. Why am I doing this? Uh, I've, I've joked that there are two situations in which I will formally call her up, like, like, like a Catholic priest, you know, call her up. Uh, one of those is Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I could safely get away with it then. The other is, and I'm only like 40% joking when I say this, is if there's like rioting in the streets and the, the man of peace is needed to go out in the middle of the rioting, like... You can be sure I'm going to wear a uniform that day. Now, I may change my thinking about that in the future. We'll see. But the vestments symbolize something. If you have followed or are aware of the Instagram account Preachers and Sneakers, it is overtly a discussion of the use of status symbols among pastors, among clergy, and the contrast between the messages that are being sent. On the other end of the spectrum, we have people like Pope Francis who have sent a very powerful symbol in the people that he physically embraces. 
You've perhaps seen pictures of people who have like very serious malformities that are obvious to everyone, people that you might feel uncomfortable touching. And the Pope has physically embraced these people. As Pope Francis this week was getting out of the hospital, he's leaving the hospital, he encountered a set of parents who just lost their child. And the Pope physically embraced this weeping woman and he kissed her on the temple and he blessed them both with the sign of the cross. That is a powerful symbol. Their individual religious symbols, our presence in a worship gathering and our absence in a worship gathering. The way that we comport our bodies in a worship gathering, kneeling, sealing, singing, crossing ourselves, giving. There are other personal symbols that each of us uh, send off in, in our attire, the, the things that we choose to wear and the way that we take care of our bodies, our hygiene, our transportation our place of residence, bumper stickers, social media is a major social symbol. We're trying to indicate to others, here's how I would like for you to perceive me. The concept of virtue signaling is about leveraging public symbols in order to be seen as one who shares the ideals of the herd. It's the whole idea of virtue signaling. Now, I could go on and on. Do you feel like you understand the point about symbols and signs? Okay. Uh, here's my point. Humans use symbols to convey and to derive meaning. And I could add that we use symbols consciously and unconsciously. We're not even thinking about it. We do it just on autopilot. We sometimes use symbols honestly, and sometimes we use them dishonestly to deceive others by way of symbols to make them think that you were a certain kind of person. We can interpret other people's symbols accurately or inaccurately. We can be blind to symbols that people or signals that people are trying to give us, and we can miss the meaning of what they want to convey. But signs are everywhere, and symbols are everywhere. And when you look at life through the lens of a semiotician, someone who's looking for signs and symbols, and when you read the scriptures paying attention to signs and symbols, they will leap at you off the page. And when you see them socially and scripturally, it's wise to ask a question like, for what purpose is this symbol being employed? What meaning is it conveying? So now we're going to look at John 12, 1 through 19 again through the lens of a semiotician. And we find there are symbols everywhere. Now take the first, the first symbol that really jumps out to us in the text is the perfume. And even when you just read those words, some of you can smell a perfume. My grandmother, before she went to the Lord, well, actually, even after she went to be with the Lord, we still smell her. In articles of clothing that she owned, or even a record player that I had that she owned, I get close, I'm like, how has that smell survived? A powerful symbol is this perfume that comes to us in the story of Jesus at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Not only the quality of the perfume, that's noted, it cost a year's wages to buy this. I mean, think about your household income and think about spending that on perfume. It's a grand, overt, powerful gesture, but it's also a, a big quantity of perfume. This comes from a commentary on John's gospel. He said, through Mary's act, the stench of death that once lingered over the household after Lazarus had died, but now has been raised to life has been replaced by the fragrance of love and devotion. Mary used this symbol of this very expensive perfume to convey honor and love and adoration and appreciation to Jesus. 
Jesus took this same symbol and repurposed it. As Judas gave her grief about the cost, Jesus said, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Jesus is realizing that his trips to Jerusalem and the consequences of them are finally going to catch up, and he's about to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. He interprets the act as being anointed for burial. You think about another symbol in the text of the feet. Jesus is reclining at the table. His feet are exposed. It's, it's the most humble part of a person. I don't love feet, and I'll tell you where I especially don't love feet. I don't like seeing men's feet on airplanes. <laughs> I don't want to see your feet on this airplane. Put a sock on that and then a shoe. It's the most humble part of a person. And Mary has washed his feet with perfume and then taken the most glorious part of her to dry his feet with her hair. Oh, what an intimate act. If someone did that for you, it'd be very uncomfortable. It'd be extremely uncomfortable and you think, go shampoo at this point. Oh, but the intimacy of that act, the most humble part of Jesus with the most glorious part of Mary, her hair. You think about the symbol of the meal. There's celebration. Lazarus was dead, and he is not dead. He is alive. He's seated right there. Think about the symbol of Lazarus himself, a, a symbol of the power of Jesus. He said the time is now coming and has in fact now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Proof, there's Lazarus. He doesn't smell bad anymore. There's intimacy it's symbolic in the meal between Jesus and his family. It also feels a bit like a going away party. Lazarus was such a symbol, a symbolic threat to the religious elite. I don't know if you'd ever noticed this in the text before, but in verse 11, said the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. He was a symbol of a threat to them. A present symbol in the text is the money. Judas was complaining about the 300 denarii that had been spent on this perfume. He would later betray Jesus for a fraction of it for 30. It's, it's, it symbolizes the, the very real threat that mammon is, that wealth is, that greed is. It has the power to destroy our lives, to destroy the Christian community. Money makes a wonderful servant and a terrible and a dreadful master. It's present to us as a symbol, as a warning. Mary herself, however, is like the foil to Judas, the opposite of Judas. In response to this beautiful thing, this powerful thing that Jesus has done for this family, Mary responds in loving devotion by washing his feet. In John chapter 13, in the very next chapter, Jesus will give a mandate to the disciples, as I have done for you in washing your feet, so you should do for each other. Jesus didn't even have to tell Mary. She just did it of her own accord. Mary symbolizes the loving response of devotion in discipleship to Jesus in response to what he has done. It's a powerful image. Now, similarly, as we go to the second half of the story in what's called the triumphal entry, when Jesus once again and consequentially enters the city of Jerusalem, we see that the text is chock full of symbols. One of the first symbols is the Mount of Olives. As Jesus made his way from Bethany further to the east, he would have gone down the Mount of Olives. And Matthew and Mark and Luke tell us that that's where Jesus entered the city. The Mount of Olives was a place that gave you a panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem, but in particular the temple. And it was a place that had messianic connotations. 
prophet Zechariah. The Lord will go out and fight against those other nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half the mountain moving south. There's this expectation when Israel's Messiah returns, his feet will be planted on the Mount of Olives where he'll be able to see the holy city. Another image that Jesus embraced for himself was the, the, the symbol of the donkey. Prophet Zechariah, again, messianic expectations concerning a donkey. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He could have come in on a, on a mighty war horse, a steed of battle. It's nonetheless victorious imagery, but it's modest. It's self-effacing. It's humble, riding in on the donkey. The palm branches, John's gospel is the only one that tells us that the people waved palm branches, and these had deep associations with political victories. In the period between the Old and New Testament, we have the story of the Maccabees, which if you don't know the story of the Maccabees, it's fascinating, and their revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greeks. But in, in the first book of, Epiphany, of, of Maccabees, which Jesus would have read, we read, on the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171, there was a great celebration in the city because this terrible threat to the security of Israel had come to an end. Simon and his men entered the fort singing hymns of praise and thanksgiving, carrying palm branches, playing harps, cymbals, and lyres. Palm branches were like waving the national flag. We see it again in 2 Maccabees, the people carrying green palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy, parading around, singing grateful praises. As Jesus enters the city and the people wave palm branches, they're associating his coming to the city with the return of the king. They, they see this as like waving the national flag. There's a political victory that's coming. Similarly, the people quotes from Psalm 118, which is a royal psalm. It's a liturgy for the people to celebrate the return of the king to the temple, saying, Lord, save us, Hosanna. That's what that means. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us with boughs in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. They've also added this line from Zephaniah saying, Blessed is the king of Israel. They're putting symbols on Jesus. Similarly, the, the, the text tells us they lay out their cloaks before him. Now, some have argued that these may actually be their prayer shawls, which would be very powerful imagery. I don't know that we can go that far, but at the very least, they're laying their garments on the road like welcoming the king on the red carpet. And then finally, he makes his way down the Mount of Olives and would have had direct access to the eastern gate uh, of the city, making their way into the temple, the Golden Gate. This uh, also had messianic expectations that Israel's Messiah would come through the eastern gate. Uh, many years later, in 1540, an Ottoman sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, would seal up the eastern gate to the city because uh, Israel's Messiah was expected to come through there, not realizing he already came. There's a subtle point of contrast between Jesus and the crowds 
in the meaning that they've assigned to the symbology that's employed. With the palms and the psalms in particular, the people are putting these nationalistic royal status on Jesus. Many of the people in the crowd are so relieved and joyful, they think that this is a January 6th kind of moment. The true king is coming back to get rid of our oppressors, to oust our enemies. Now, Jesus doesn't shy away from images of power. He knows that riding the donkey is evocative, that it's messianic, but he clarifies that he is a different kind of king than the people think. And we see this in the symbols that Jesus himself employs as he makes his way through the rest of Holy Week. As we'll talk about on Thursday, the symbol of a towel and a basin when he washes the disciples' feet. At that Last Supper, the symbols of bread and wine and all that that means. The symbol of the crown of thorns that will be placed on his brow. The symbol of the cross. The symbol of the tomb. I think similarly, we could argue about the symbol of just Jesus' silence as he stood before his accusers. He was not arguing for his rights, but with perfect humility, bearing the responsibilities that his father had given him. It would be, I think, a meaningful exercise this week just to meditate on the symbology here, on on these images and what they tell us about what our God and Jesus is like. In the, the, uh, the Last Supper, in Luke's telling of the story, Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles, and they would have immediately had these images of, of centurions, of Caesars, of people who force others to bow to their will. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who exercise authority are called benefactors, but you, talking to his intimate people, you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. The one who serves should be like the one. The one who rules should be like the one who serves. He says, look, you get it. Who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But listen, I'm telling you, this is counterintuitive, but I have come among you as one who serves. And that's what we're like in our family. It's the great temptation of every age to treat the cross like a mirror. And in the cross, we see mirror images of the things that are most important to us. And if you did Google searches, you could find the cross like decked out in all kinds of different designs of national imagery or other causes. But the cross and and the things that we put on it, we put on Jesus, shows us what we value most. It's our instinct as human nature. We're just like the crowds of the triumphal entry. We're placing our self-centered, self-interested hopes and dreams on Jesus, treating him or treating his cross like a talisman, like a rabbit's foot or a good luck charm to help us get what we want in life, forgetting that the cross first means death. The cross first means humility and humiliation. The cross means submission And it means surrender. And as his followers, we know the gospel logic has taught us that the way to life always passes first through death. Death to self, death to sin. Jesus said this in Luke 9, If anyone would come after me to be my disciple, let them first deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life 
to preserve control, they're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake, they're going to find it. This cross-shaped, cruciform life, death, leads to resurrection. It's why from the very, very beginning of the church, from the earliest accounts that we have, it was a significant symbolic act for people to mark themselves with the sign of the cross. Google it and see what the church of the first three centuries said about marking themselves with the sign of the cross as a physical reminder that my occupation in life is to carry my own cross and follow Jesus in the way of the cross, that the way of death, the way of self-denial leads to true flourishing. The church could say, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. They, how morose, mark themselves with the sign of the cross. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Thinking about symbols, thinking about signals, and what they mean to us. In thinking about the symbols that you have attached to Jesus, like if you're doing word association or image association, and you think about Jesus, or you think about his cross, do the symbols that you've attached to Jesus match the symbols that he's taken upon himself? Or you might think, to, to really put a more fine point on it, does, does the meaning that you've assigned to those symbols match the meaning that Jesus has assigned to them? I think about, like, the contrast of images of a diamond-encrusted cross. Okay, does the meaning that I've assigned to those symbols match the meaning, the significance that Jesus has assigned to them? Or to shift gears and to come at it from another angle, think about the people that you most admire. Like if there's a Google story about this person or if there's a story socially about this person in our little community, there's a person you admire. Think about the people that you admire or your heroes. And I want you to consider what are the symbols that they employ and leverage for themselves. And instead of thinking about what it means for them, I want you to think about what does that say about you and the things that you most value. If, if you're able to gain just a little bit of distance from yourself and look at yourself as if you're looking at another person, I want you to think about what are the symbols that you have consciously and unconsciously employed uh, for yourself? And then do those symbols match your ideals? And if not, what symbolic action do you need to take to bring alignment? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, after Jesus made this entry to Jerusalem, he took, he took meaningful, symbolic action by making his way into the temple and clearing the temple. John tells the story from another angle. Today, as we come to the table, be wise to invite the Lord Jesus to come and clear the temple of our hearts, of those things that are, represent competing ideologies, the things that represent idols, Ways in which in the story of the temple we've set up wealth and resources and image at the heart of our person. Maybe we would invite the Lord Jesus to come and cleanse the temple of our hearts. I think as we wrap today and as we get ready to come to the table, we think about the powerful symbol that the table front and center in the life of our church is and what it tells us about a God who in the person of Jesus Christ wants to have an intimate relationship with you. The people that you eat at your dining room table with are generally your people. 
your friends. And Jesus extends to us that kind of invitation and hospitality. Except at this party, we don't bring anything other than our sin, our doubt, our curiosities about him. And Jesus supplies in the bread and wine everything that's needed for this table. Again, a powerful image of us coming forward with empty hands and him having something to offer to us. Yes, as with any time we, we reflect on the scriptures, this invites of us a, a response of repentance. Lord Jesus, where am I thinking wrongly? Where am I feeling wrongly? Where have I been led astray? Where have I been duped by some of the, the, the symbolism of the world that suggests this is how we find meaning and status and worth? And Lord Jesus, how ought I to turn and take up the towel in the basin for myself? How can I find my identity and acre my identity more fully in, in my baptism? Think again of that incredibly powerful symbol of being washed, being reborn, passing from death to life, hearing the Father say, this is my child that I love. With you, I'm well pleased. How's the Lord and Jesus inviting you to repent? And how's he also inviting you to put faith in him? That who he says about you and what he's done for you is more than enough to build a life on that his words are life, that in him is the fountain of light, and in his light we see light. Let's pray together. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.